History for schools, take eight. Action! Defeat at the castle seems to have utterly disheartened King Arthur. The ferocity of the French taunting took him completely by surprise, and Arthur became convinced that a new strategy was required if the quest for the Holy Grail were to be brought to a successful conclusion. Arthur, having consulted his closest knights, decided that they should separate and search for the Grail individually. Now this is what they did. Hello and welcome to the Page to Pixel podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy, after usurping the title from my co-host, Reed. Reed, would you like to introduce yourself today? Hi, I'm Reed. Good job, bud. All right, well, today we are talking about one of the first games I played on the PC. Um, It is very near and dear to my heart. It is a fantasy RPG called Fable, and the other two games, Fable 2 and Fable 3, there's a few sort of sub-games that we will not be discussing today because most of them are just micro-games that don't have a lot to do with the main overarching story. So, Reed, would you like to talk about your familiarity with the Fable franchise? Yes, I absolutely would. Um, Fable wasn't one of the first games I've played on PC. I'm really surprised that that was one of your first PC games. There's literally no games you played before then. Like, Did you like just first starting playing computer games in like 2004 or...? Well, basically, so we had a, like a personal computer growing up, and I played. I mean, okay, like the first PC game I played was Math Blaster, but that was just oh, so you're, so so you're a liar, okay? Yeah, I'm a big dumb liar. I mean, if you want to consider fake learning a game, I guess, but I would say my first actual real video game, it was it was it's a toss up. I guess my memory's starting to fade, but it's a toss up between this and Oblivion. I it was on the first computer that I built, and. When I loaded the game up again to replay it before recording this episode, the little animation where that bandit walks up and like just a flood of memories and nostalgia mm-hmm. came rushing back, and I felt like I was a kid again. Yeah, I, that I feel the exact same way. I think that's what's so significant about the first Fable game. My experiences with it were, uh, I got it for the original Xbox. Uh, I had heard some of the hype about it because I know the like internet message boards and stuff like that were pretty significant back in the day but i was one of those people that was really dedicated to like print media so getting like game informer um egm stuff like that so reading about fable i was really excited about it and like a lot of people i bought into a lot of the hype on the game so when it came out i was hooked on it um i was what 15 years old when it came out it came out in um september of 2004 so i had just turned 15 and you know I think, and we're, we'll talk about this too, but I think the environment and the music were just so engrossing and so of the season. You know, it's a very, when it, the reason why we're doing it, I think, is because it's a very fall game. It's a very fall series. I don't know if that's the intention, but all of the games were released in either September or October. So my impressions of it, my reflection on it, is that I absolutely loved it when it first came out. Um, it just reminds me of fall, the music, the environment, stuff like that. So whenever fall kicks around, um, it doesn't matter how old I get, I usually throw on the Fable 1 soundtrack just because it's excellent. <laughs> um, and we're, we'll talk a little bit about my impressions of the second and third game, but overall, yeah, it was just a really uh, important game for me on the original Xbox. Yeah, that's that's really interesting you bring up that it's kind of a fall game for you because when you think about some of the stuff that happens there in, you know, in the series, there's a, there's a lot of sort of death and, and gloom, even though it's an, like more cartoony style game there is a lot of serious topics that kind of happen here it's very dark and grim and even sort of from like a thematic standpoint underneath it also fits with fall so that's kind of a kind of an interesting little tidbit you brought up there guy it is and obviously with the page to pixel podcast we like to emphasize themes and stuff like that and looking at the world of fable one i think we can just kind of open it up to talk about the game of fable one is it's this very interesting play on early Middle Ages England kind of mixed with I think game GameSpot said it was like a mixture mixture between like medieval England and Terry Pratchett fantasy so it has this really weird interplay between having this 
semi-serious background with this really absurd tongue-in-cheek humor. And I think that's one of the things that makes it so successful. I know when they were kind of developing this game, they wanted to kind of step away from all of the other RPGs that were coming out around the time that were super serious, that had super deep uh, lore and stuff like that. And they wanted to make something that was really fresh and as the name in, in entails, Fable-like. Yeah, so I mean, it really follows just the sort of typical hero's journey. And one thing I really enjoy about it is, as you're talking about the setting, it's this sort of sleepy villa. As you explore, the, the game takes place in, in Albion. And as you explore it, kind of even when you go to the big cities, they're still really small scale. And as I said previously, I think Sleepy describes it really well. Uh, it's just very, you know, traders walking back and forth. There's not a ton of hustle and bustle. You don't you don't see a lot of, of interaction like you do in, say, maybe in Oblivion or Skyrim where people just break out into fights in the street. But there's some darkness going on. So it's this really interesting contrast, I feel, where... It's almost kind of like when you hear like something really weird happening in a in a town that only has fifty people, you know. So it it kind of reflects the real world in an interesting way. I feel at least coming from a small town. Yeah, it has a very. I think the word you might be looking for is a very cozy game. Cozy's probably better than sleepy. Yeah, that's fair. Now that you kind of mentioned how big the cities and and uh, settlements are, it kind of reminds me of not Lego, but you know, like the the like, I think it's Danish or Swedish toy, the Playmobil. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah. It just kind of reminds me of like a toy set in a way. Like, it's, I don't know what it, about this, but it kind of like you could take um, any of the cities and like make a toy set of it and it would make sense. Right. Uh, I was watching a, a little sort of documentary about it when they were making the game and apparently for the building design and stuff. So the a lot of the people that were making the game lived in sort of a, a more cozy part of uh, England and they just walked around and found architecture that they liked that was still like kind of built in a traditional style and that's what they designed it around so that's a kind of interesting little a little factoid there so it is sort of semi real world ancient or old cozy england i think it's like just, what what people would paint england to be back in the middle ages which it really wasn't right and looking at the background of the game um I would say Peter Molyneux was one of the first game directors that I knew the name of, like, firsthand. Him and, like, Hideo Kojima. I knew who Hideo Kojima was, and I knew Peter Molyneux just because of... I think Peter Molyneux is, like, the ultimate hype man. Um, he had some successful games previously, like Black and White, where you kind of... It's like an RTS or a strategy game where you play as a god, essentially. Oh, I love that game. Yeah, yeah, it's a good one. And That was him? Wanted, that was Peter Molyneux, yeah. Oh, shit. Yeah. And um, so Lionhead Studio was the, the primary developer behind all of these games. For the first Fable game, they kind of made a satellite uh, developer called Blue Box. Uh, yeah, Big Blue Box Games. And with that, that's where the development started. And it took, I want to say, like five or uh, four, five, six years to actually come to fruition. And all the while, while the people are working on it and, you know, in their offices and their cubicles, Peter Molyneux is going on the press circuit saying this is going to be the greatest game ever. You're going to be able to plant an acorn and an oak tree is going to develop as you play the course of the game. So he's he's one of those people, um, kind of like that guy from Hello Games who did uh, No Man's Sky, just uber hype man. Yeah. Um, unlike No Man's Sky, which, had, which kind of tanked on retail launch, which did make a comeback. No Man's Sky is a great game now. But I think what they were able to do with Fable 1 against what they contrasted the uh, promises was a disappointment for a lot of people. But again, as someone that was just drawn into the world, I think they did a really good job with it. So yeah, I mean, that's, if you want to find the story of the creation of Fable 1, it's obviously available online. There's a lot to it, but it went through all these different titles. It was called Project Ego, like Wonder World or something like that. They just wanted to make as Peter Molyneux said, the greatest game ever. And whether it is or not is probably up to debate. Um, most people consider it a really strong game for the time. It won a lot of awards when it originally came out in 2004. And a lot of people still hold it in really strong regard. Is it one of the greatest games ever? I I don't know. I, I think it's definitely great for its time. It is. It does have that jank to it, as, as I'm sure we'll talk about. And... Um, 
I think there's 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 a few things that don't hold up as well, but I think there's the, the atmosphere really does hold up as well. And I think I, the, I, sorry, ahead. I was I think it's one of those keystone games. Or right, there's a lot of things where maybe it wasn't the first to do. You know, it's not the first to have multiple endings or necessarily like a good and bad system. But I think it's one of those games where. It, it took some of the things other people were doing, improved on them, added some more stuff, and kind of further, maybe set some expectations of like, okay, this is what's possible. And, you know, I mean, if you look at the game like Outer Worlds, where there's, what I don't remember, how, what, like 32 potential endings for that game or different scenarios just based on like who you side with, you can draw a pretty straight connection from that, from this game, which only has, I think, six different endings, but... In, you know, stepping stones. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the reasons we wanted to talk about this game in particular is something that we had discussed kind of in our impromptu side conversations before recording is just that how this game as a medium sort of transcended what was usual in a video game that you followed linear paths. Uh, if you guys haven't played the game, which I highly recommend you do, at least play the first game, as we're going to talk about, <laughs> as we're going to talk about the second and third games sooner than later. Um, what this game does is it allows for the morality system, it allows for different choices and actions and consequences, and how it gives you the opportunity to kind of play whatever you want and have tangible results because of that. I'm sure you have a lot more to say than I do about that, Jeremy. Yeah, just kind of to build off of it, I think. It really is one of those first games where the the player's choices kind of dictate how the world treats you. So if you're bad, I know we talked about this before, people boo you in the streets, will kind of cower in fear, and you actually will, if you're bad enough, you will actually start to get physical deformalities of horns and your skin will pale, and then in the like grass will start to die around you within the in the, the inverse side you get a halo if you're good and like butterflies will float around you so it's it is i'm going to go out on a limb and say the first game where you actually see the physical effects of what you do in in the game and your choices yeah i think there are games that predate this that do have some sort of morality system to them not necessarily like in terms of physical effects but like if you make this decision positively or this decision negatively, it'll lead to, you know, a new tree of consequences. But I can't remember a game before this that, like you said, depending on your positive or negative alignment, it's going to actually um, affect the way people interact with you. It's going to affect how you look. I remember particularly being annoyed whenever you'd go evil in this game. Um, flies would be buzzing around your head and stuff like yeah. that. Um, and then being good and having the halo around your head and just this sort of aura around you. And I think that's a really enveloping feature is because when you play a game traditionally, you have an idea of how you want to play the game, especially in an RPG, where you think, okay, I want to play a good good uh, a good playthrough or a bad guy playthrough. And you just do the you do the actions, but you don't see the consequences as they're building. And I think this game does such a tremendous job with um, kind of showcasing that. Yeah, and for me at least, it also helps a lot with getting me invested and immersed into the game itself. When you look like a bad guy because you're doing bad things, it makes me just feel more like I'm in that world. It make you you know like, or even just having the halo and looking almost angelic with your sort of shining aura, it it, it gives you that consequence to your actions that really sucks me in. And that's kind of this game in general. There's a lot of little stuff that you can do that doesn't necessarily have any real impact on the main story or anything like that that you just you know like you can you can flirt and get married you can there's a whole like hotkey bar where you can just go dance in bars and people will clap and cheer for you just odd little sort of time wasters that make it really hard to burn through the game in a week so that you can make a podcast about it right no I, I... <laughs> This isn't a game that this is. You'd never see a speed run of this because it's like it, it's just not a game where you do that. No, like I was honestly, I, I think I mentioned that to you. I was just like, I'm having a hard time just playing the main story because 
there's so much little stupid stuff to do that's just gratifying because you just get engrossed in the world. Right. I mean, my favorite thing was like finding apples and buying pies and and finding all the new different haircuts and stuff and seeing how people would react to me when I had mutton chops instead of a mustache and all this other stuff. I couldn't stop eating baby chickens. Yeah. So I'm going to get the, the crunch. It's the crunch. It's so it's just they just seem so delectable. Do you um, how how worn out is the key on your computer or controller for the fart button? Oh, there's there's literally no text on it anymore. It's just a black key. I mean, if a, if a fart emote doesn't make game of the year, I don't know what does. <laughs> um, yeah, I think we can probably talk about the plot just a little bit with these games. Um, we, we we kind of get we've gotten into the plot about a lot of games pretty in depth, and we can obviously go there with a lot of these games. But for Fable One, Two, and Three. The plot is solid, but it's nothing that is groundbreaking. It's not like a, a Dragon Age where it's, you know, a, a full-on book that you could do. So if we just want to kind of briefly go over the plots of all these games, I think we can just continue gushing on the games themselves after we go through the plots. Fable is the story of the hero of Oakdale, orphaned after a bandit attack on the village. The boy was taken in by an old hero, Maze. He would be raised in the Heroes Guild, where he would hone his skills and meet his lifelong friend and rival, Whisper. Yeah, and I remember Maze looking like, I don't know, like Lawrence Fishburne. <laughs> Lawrence Fishburne meets like Samuel L. Jackson with like Abe Lincoln beard. There's all these like tattoos and stuff like that. I'm like, what's going on here, buddy? And Whisper is this, you know. He had like a Goku haircut too, kind he of. Did, he you just like that sort of like weird swept hair. Even as like a fifteen year old, I didn't like him. <laughs> so <laughs> he's like, like that one. He's the one adult hanging around with the kids. Uh, just like you got a kid here at this playground? Nope. Uh, and you want to talk about Whisper? Not really. Okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good. <laughs> no, she kind of so, sucks. <laughs> she's uh, she's fine. As a young man, our hero would graduate from the Heroes Guild, setting out to build his reputation. He would eventually make his way back to Oakvale, where he meets Maze and is informed of a seer who lives in a bandit camp that knows what may have happened to his sister. The hero infiltrates the bandit camp, defeating the leader Twinblade, and discovers the seer is his lost sister, Teresa, who was taken in by the bandits after the raid. You ever wonder, like, if they could have come up with a better name than Teresa? Nope. Because it's just... I don't know, it's a biblical name, and I don't know, there's Maze and Whisper and Teresa. I mean, the kid's dad's name is Broom with one less O. Brom? Yeah. Like, that's like Game of Thrones, isn't it? Yeah, that's fair. I mean, Brom. that might actually that might actually be like a, an actual name in England, I don't know. Yeah, but England isn't a real place. That's fair. Alright, go ahead. <laughs> Gaining more reputation, the hero is invited to join the arena, ran by Jack of Blades, eventually besting Whisper in the arena. Afterwards, while talking with Jack and then subsequently Teresa, we will learn that the hero's mother is still alive and has been imprisoned by Jack, who is behind the raid of Oakvale. He was attempting to capture their family, whose bloodline would allow Jack to uncover the Sword of Eons, a legendary blade that is imbued with the power of all Albion. Correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know if you've gotten to this part in the Anniversary Edition, but when you're in the arena fighting Whisper, do you have the option to kill her? Oh, you betcha you do, for money. Oh, that's it's, what I it, thought. It's like every round you get a bonus, and then you eventually fight with Whisper, and then you fight her, and then you get like a bonus bunch of money if you kill her. And that, uh, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but... That will kind of summarize most of the moral dilemma in this game. It, it, there's not really any gray. It's either, are you greedy or or are you just going to, like, save someone? After a failed jailbreak, the hero spends a year in prison before an opportunity to escape arises. Freeing himself and his mother, while tracking down Jack, we discover Maze has betrayed the hero and kidnapped Teresa to perform a ritual to allow Jack access to the sword. After defeating Maze, the hero chases Jack around Albion. However, Jack stays one step ahead of activating ancient focus sites. Jack then kidnaps the hero's mother at the last site and teleports to the hero's guild. Yeah, I, I just, I knew I couldn't trust Maze. That $30 haircut. <laughs> Slick back hair and tattoos, glowing eyes. He's like every guy from Detroit. 
Sorry, the zero Detroit listeners we have. <laughs> Someday it'll be one. So finally, back at the Heroes Guild, Jack sacrifices the hero's mother to collect the Sword of Aeons. The two have a battle where the hero stands victorious, and now our hero must make their final decision to cast the blade into the void, destroying it forever, or strike down his sister to unlock the power for himself. Like we kind of talked about at the beginning, it is a, a very basic story, and quite honestly, there's nothing wrong with that. My question is, do they even have the internet in Detroit? <laughs> All right, stop putting people from Detroit on blast. Take them to Detroit. <laughs> Not Detroit, anything but that. But yes, as you said, it's um, it's a very simple plotline. It sounds like someone's like D and D campaign gone awry. Um, it's not bad, but like you said, I think the problem that it kind of falls on is de the decisions are binary. Yes and no, good and bad. I guess the end is kind of ultimate evil versus like ultimate good or maybe just like kind of good. I don't, I wouldn't necessarily consider saving your sister's life or not killing your sister ultimate good, but, and at Twin Blades camp, you get the option to save him. It's a lot of just like, are you going to kill this person or do the right thing? And to be honest, there's not a lot of gain. I think it's like, you get like 20 grand for killing Whisper. After getting like 50 if you do well in the arena. Well, I do it for free. <laughs> she's, so, not that, she's not that bad. It's just, I don't know. She was just super annoying when you guys were kids. And yes, yeah. as, if, we didn't, if we didn't mention, this game kind of takes place. The beginning of the games, you're a child. You're like really small. And then when you're in the Heroes Guild getting your training with Whisper and... Uh, the Jean-Luc Picard-looking guy, you're kind of like a young adult, and then once you kind of graduate that academy, you're in full, full-blown adulthood. Um, and do you want to talk a little bit about how leveling up works in this game? Absolutely. I actually really enjoyed it. So, unlike a lot of RPGs at the time, you don't pick a class. If you look back at, like, Icewind Dale, Heroes of Might and Magic, those kinds of things, you usually have some sort of class which dictates how you play the game. To a lesser extent, Morrowind was similar, but you were still kind of pigeonholed by the things you took mastery in. In this game, there's four different XP pools. There's a physical, magical, agility, and then a general. And then you will get XP based on what you do. So if you're fighting melee, you get physical XP. If you're fighting magic, magic, whatever. But when you go back, you level up based on that. But that general pool you can use for any skill. So you're not pigeonholed into one particular playstyle, and you can kind of pick up a secondary playstyle as the game progresses. And the amount of XP you get is dictated by your combat multiplier. So when you play games like Arkham Asylum, things like that, where there's combat multipliers, that directly relates to how much XP you get. So even though the combat's kind of basic, a little clunky, you are rewarded for your skill. Yeah, I remember the, the the combat being pretty clunky by today's standards. And yeah, when you when you fight, let's say with um, just using magic, and you kill enemies, you get like a sprinkling of general XP, but a bunch of magic XP. So it does allow you to change up the playstyle that you want to do. Let's say if you want to play magic for a while, then switch to strength or guile or skill or whatever it's called. Um, you can do that, but what happens is you, you're typically, whatever you're killing enemies with, you're just going to get more of that style of XP. So I, I did also agree, I, I really liked it and the ability to kind of build whatever character you want. I remember in my playthroughs, I would typically have a strength build with some magic in, included just for usually buffs and stuff like that. It's the best build. It is, it is. Um, and let me ask you, I think, since we're talking a lot about the alignment of... Uh, evil or positive, holy, whatever you want to call it. When you're playing this game, Jeremy, most in the most recent version on the Anniversary Edition on Steam, when you're playing this game, how do you, do you play it evil? Do you play it good? How do you play it? So this one in particular, I played good. When I played it the first time, I know I did play a couple of good playthroughs, but I usually went evil just because it's fun. It is fun. When, you, when you're 14 and it's just like, oh, I'm just going to go cast the shockwave spell in a store just to cause mayhem. 
I mean, um, yeah, when you're when you're 14 years old and some kid spills chocolate milk on your Jinkos and steals your tech deck, yeah, you're gonna want to take it out on somebody. Speaking from personal experience, no, <laughs> I'm not convinced. <laughs> yeah, I, I typically um, whenever there's a morality uh, morality gauge in a game, I like to play what I would do in that specific situation. So if it's something that I personally, as Reed, agrees with, I will do it or I won't do it. I, that's how I really play with any, like I said, any morality game, particularly like the KOTOR games. Um, that's what I usually do too. With Fable 1, though, it's just so hard to not do anything other than the, the, like, the right thing. Because like, most of the morality stuff is just straight up kill a defenseless man. Yeah, and I think one of the themes that I'm discovering as we're continuing to talk is that the morality system is really cool in terms of the physical appearance, but the, the the binary nature of it of this is clearly a good thing or clearly a bad thing is like a little ham fisted, and something like Kotor um, that also did have a like a morality up and down uh, light side dark side scale, um, which did actually change your appearance too. Did that one? Uh, oh. I think if you were evil, if you were evil, definitely. I don't know. So it wasn't as elaborate if you were. I guess were, I remember that in Kotar too. I don't remember it in one though. You, you could be right. You could be right. But that's uh, it's a been. It's been a while. Maybe that's another series we can cover. Um, but I remember like Kotor one and two, just making decisions based upon what I would do, and the the decisions that you made in those games were a little bit more uh, nebulous, a little bit more um, ambiguous. That's the word I'm looking for. While this game is very much. Will you kill the 14 villagers or, uh, or save, not? Or save <laughs> or, the elf? Yeah. Um, while we're still somewhat close to the talking about leveling up and combat and stuff, one thing that is really also cool going back to everything affecting your character and how they look, your build also affects their physical appearance. So if you spec into strength, you get a really buff dude. If you don't put anything into strength and just go all magic, you get a really skinny, lanky sort of underfed dude if you run around eating a bunch of pies your character will be fat and again may have not been the first game to do it but it was definitely the first major hit successful game to do that sort of thing and it didn't really dawn on me how sort of widespread this game was i mean i grew up with like five friends that played games and then everyone else was just kind of like games are for nerds unless it's call of duty and halo so but like just talking with a couple of people and just mentioning, oh yeah, I'm playing Fable again. I got a, a bunch of, oh man, I haven't played that game in forever. That's such a good game. And to me, that really sets in stone how foundational this game is. When it's just talking to so many people that are just, oh yeah, I forgot about Fable. That's such a good game. Yeah, it wasn't the game that did the first of any of these things. It just did it really well. So I remember playing like Grand Theft Auto San Andreas and going to like the fast food restaurants and seeing how fat I would get and then and then getting like a BMX bike and then just like biking to like the next area listening to like metal oops I swore um, oh, well. oh not swearing put a crack so, on it hey yeah. one of those heads kids were in trouble <laughs> I hope so um yeah I think it's just a really foundational game I think it did inadvertently change the way that future RPGs would be made whether they want to credit it or not, I think it is a very foundational game. Uh, and if not directly changed the landscape, helped pave the way for a lot of new decisions. You were kind of talking about Witcher 3 and some of the parallels with that. Do you want to elaborate on that? Yeah, so I, in The Witcher 3, for example, when you get damaged, your clothes will start to get, like, the cuts will be sewn up and stuff like that. And there's a very similar thing that happens in this game where... If you take a lot of hits, your character will start to get scars. And if you were me playing when I was a kid, I'd take my character shirt off and he he looked just all scarred up, kind of like The Witcher does in Witcher 3. And uh, I just thought it was just, it was just kind of a, a parallel that I saw where it's just like, oh man, this is something that this game did, what, when did Witcher 3 come out? Probably 12 years after this? 12, yeah, 14? 2000, 2014, 2015, somewhere around then. You know, so there are just some really direct connections you can make to... Again, is it a set in stone leap? But maybe not. But it's definitely happened before, and I most likely an inspiration, if anything. And I think because of Peter Molyneux's hype machine, that a lot of developers or fans of the game that became developers were very well aware of this game. 
Um, I remember, I think one of my favorite things, sorry, I don't want to interrupt, but just one more thing about Fable 1 is uh, I, I remember playing the game and not being super interested in the main quest because it's one of those games like Skyrim that you kind of don't want to end. You want it to just kind of be at a certain point for the entirety of the game. And I remember playing and trying to get as good as I could by doing like donations and, and, and positive deeds and then trying my best to immediately switch it to evil or vice versa. And so you'd have your, let's say you were fully evil and then you go and get like a, a, a hairstyle or a beard style that was gonna make your alignment more positive or you immediately did a bunch of good deeds. You'd kind of be stuck in the middle of like, you'd have horns that were receding, but you'd also have a halo and the flies were still buzzing around. So you'd be like, in this really weird just middle. like hybrid monster yeah you were really in the you were in the middle yeah it's really fun to do you're like gold bloom and the fly yes exactly um and i would also like to point out as far as fantasy goes one thing that's really interesting is this game breaks away from traditional fantasy in a lot of ways where there's not dwarves or elves or orcs they have some of their own kind of unique creatures like hobs that are just sort of like hybrid like they're not goblins. They, they're just like they're short like goblins, but they're a little bit more like rotund and and bouncy. And there's a variant werewolf, like some nymphs and stuff and undead. But a lot of those typical fantasy tropes, it didn't necessarily bring over, which in a way is kind of not that there's anything wrong with those tropes, but it's a a little bit of a relief to to just see some a couple of new things here and there. Yeah, it seems like they took some of these ancient tropes about goblins and werewolves, but kind of made it their own. Do we have anything else to say about Fable 1 before we move on to the second and third games? I think I've talked about how much I like this game. So I guess I'm not going to have a ton to say about Fable 2, so I'm going to give you the brunt of that. So unfortunately, Fable 2 only came out on the Xbox uh, 360, right? Yes. Yeah, and I was not blessed with an Xbox 360 as a child or a young adult. So this kind of passed me. I remember it coming out and being really excited for it and then being really sad when I found out I didn't have the access to play it. And I thought my days of playing Fable were done until Fable 3 came out, in which case I played that game. But Reed, if you would like to take Fable 2 from here. So I, yeah, I was, like I said, I was super enamored with Fable 1. And the Lost Chapters, which was like the DLC pack that added a couple hours of entertainment on this on the end of it. But when Fable 2 was announced, uh, I was super hyped for it because I loved the first game. It, it had a bit of a steadier development than the first game did, according to some research that I did. The developers that were in charge of it, Lionhead again, were having the ability to kind of take their time with the, with the second game. So it was not nearly as rushed as the first game. And it came out, Fable 2 came out uh, October 21st, 2008. I remember specifically pre-ordering this game. It was my freshman year of college, pre-ordering this game at Best Buy. And one of the pre-order bonuses was a plush hob action figure. In addition to like a steel case and I think some trading cards or like, like really nice art cards. And I went to Best Buy to pick it up and they're like, oh, we don't have the hob plush. They didn't make any. And I was really upset. Justifiably and so. Despite the fact that I w eventually worked at that Best Buy, I was really upset. Um, and going into Fable 2, it takes place 500 years after the original Fable game. All of these games, Fable 1, 2, and 3, are interrelated. They are technically related. So Fable 2 takes place 500 years. It's the same place as Albion, which is essentially modeled after ancient, not ancient, but Middle Ages uh, Britain. But this time around, it's 500 years in the future, so it kind of moves from this Middle Ages, post-Black Death style England to the colonial era. So it introduces some industry and firearms, guns, uh, black powder uh, guns and stuff like that. And even as a fan of the first game, obsessively loving the first game, when I went into the second game, I'm like, I don't really like this new setting and style, although, I love the first game, so I'm going to give it a shot. And that's really my whole impression of the second game is that it it took a lot of good things about Fable 1 and added on to the good mechanics. But I, I just think that it wasn't necessarily as engrossing or um, 
I don't have a lot of nostalgia for it. And it, it, I should have had nostalgia for it because I was really hyped up for it. And it, it came out and I remember the magic system being a bit different. You just essentially had to hold down the B button to scroll through and to power up magic moves. Unlike the first game where you just kind of click on a button and you select what spell you want to use. You actually have to hold down for the efficacy of the spell in the second game. They did include a dog companion for this game and I think you can select the breed that you wanted, but... Oh boy. Yeah, I don't remember it actually having any sort of significance other than to find buried treasure. So playing this game, I'm like, oh, this is going to be fun like the first one. And it does have a bit more of an open world. I think with the first game, as great as it is, it is relatively linear. Once you can, There's not a ton of side quests. Um, with the second one, there's a lot of side quests. You can spend a lot of time just doing... Um, there's like jobs that you can do, like blacksmithing and woodcutting to kind of get you money in the game. So it does, the world does open up a bit more, but my general impressions were that I don't like this new setting. For whatever reason, I don't want to live in this sort of colonial advancing Albion. I want to have this sort of picturesque storybook fantasy fable game. And Fable 2 didn't really offer that. And I think that's exemplified in the plot, which I'll talk about in a second. Jeremy, do you have anything to add to my comments here? Uh, yeah, I would agree. I Like I said, obviously I didn't play the game, but I remember watching the trailers and seeing the demos at Best Buy where I also worked. And I always had a hard time kind of coming to terms with the fact that the world had changed. Um, obviously the mandatory dog companion that we see in almost every game now is just kind of whatever, but I think that happens a lot to me particular where when a game changes the setting, it kind of loses me. A good, a good example is Mass Effect Andromeda. When, when you have a game that has that sort of title and you have a lot of feelings and emotion and connection to it, you feel almost betrayed when it's sort of uprooted and shifted. Kind of like you know what you're buying and now you're buying something different. And I would say that that's pretty much like my only relation to that game is just feeling like I don't feel so bad that I didn't get a chance to play it now that I kind of see what it is. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think we're going to talk about this, uh, th that once we conclude with Fable 3 is just like how we build our expectations around a series based on one game and then the subsequent games aren't necessarily as catching or um, involved as, as you'd want them to be. So we'll talk about that once we yeah. get, get through Fable 2. I guess the only other thing I would have to say is coming back now and re-looking at it, I did get a chance to, to watch an overview of the story just so I was not completely in the dark when we talk about this. But... One thing at least I thought was kind of redeeming for it, not to spoil what you're about to talk about, is apparently you play a descendant of the main character in Fable 1. Yes, that's correct. So so now that I look back on it and see it from there, I, I guess I'm a little bit more open to the idea of it, because then there's at least something that roots you back to that original setting. Yep. But... Yeah, I do definitely remember just kind of that culture shock of like, this isn't what I want. Yeah, and that's that's kind of how I felt. I liked it, and typically the reviews are a bit better for the second game than they are the first game uh, when it came out. I think Fable 1 kind of suffered critic review because it didn't live up to the expectations. But then Fable Was 2 Lionhead's a small studio at the time? I don't think so. I, I, I know for the first game, there was like 70 plus developers. So that's a lot of people. Yeah. Okay. So I, I don't think it's necessarily a small feature. And it was typically, not typically, it was published by Microsoft Studios. So this is a pretty big dog, right? Right. Okay. So let's talk about the plot of Fable 2 just a little bit. Um, I would say it's even weaker than the first game. Essentially, it starts off as a young boy and girl are kind of living in poverty in this relatively industrial city. And they kind of meet a traveler who offers them a magical musical box that gives them a, a wish. Um, and they wish to kind of alleviate their, their position in life. And they go and meet this Lord of the area, Lord Lucian is his name. And once they meet him, he's accusing them of being one of these heroes of legend that's kind of out to, thwart his uh, actions so what happens is he kills your sister and attacks you and kind of throws you wounded back into the streets um 
So the first part of the game, as you're meeting Lord Lucian there, you're playing as a little kid doing errands, much like the first game. But once Lord Lucian captures you and your sister and kills your sister, throws you out into the street, that's where the main stay of the game happens. And you realize you need to kind of overthrow this Lord Lucian and kind of go do away with him. So you meet Teresa, who is this sort of seer messenger from the, from the uh, Heroes Guild from the first game. And you discover this ancient ruin underneath the city where, which was the Heroes Guild. And you eventually sort of use some of the powers that were a part of the Heroes Guild. And you're, you're meant to find these three heroes of strength, will, and skill to help you do away with Lucian and his evil deeds. So you first kind of set out to find uh, Sister Hannah, who's a monk. And she kind of changes her name to Hammer as the game goes on. So you follow her own quest line and you do this stuff for uh, Hammer. And she joins your side as the uh, hero of strength. Then you go and find Garth, who is this uh, hero of will. He's the mage, party on Garth. And eventually, eventually you find that there's this mayor, this leader of this town called Bloodstone within the kingdom. And it's run by this guy named Reaver, who is the hero of skill. Uh, and you're trying to convince him to join your party so that you can defeat Lucian, but he actually ends up double-crossing you. And what you guys have to do is go to this thing called the Spire and channel energy to defeat Lucian. So you're, you're chased back to this area, and once you do this spell to, with the three heroes to um, thwart Lucian, you actually kind of chase him up to his throne room, and I don't want to necessarily spoil the ending, but I remember being super, super disappointed in the ending because I'll just say it, the, the ending here with Lucian is you chase him up to this throne room and you have this confrontation with him and you literally just shoot him and that's the end of the game. I mean, bullets are really good. They are. They are. But as you're... Well, the thing is, if you don't shoot him, Reaver, the uh, the skill hero, will do it regardless. Um, oh, so so you're, you have no actually, like... It doesn't matter what your what your choice is, but it does leave the ending choice. There's a few um, options that you do have. Um, when right before this kind of takes place, you have the the choice of three different endings. The first is to resurrect all of the people that were killed during the construction of the spire, which is like the source of Lucian's power. Um, second choice is resurrecting all your loved uh, all your loved ones. So the dog that you had, um, your spouse, and your sister, you can resurrect them. Or you can uh, you can just gain a huge fortune. So you have three choices. Resurrect um, all the people that constructed the spire, um, all of your loved ones, or just get a huge chunk of money. And I believe I chose um, resurrecting your loved ones. I only played this game once back in 2008 when it came out. And that's really the plot of Fable 2. A little bit weaker, a little bit more stereotypical in terms of a fantasy plot. Go and get all these heroes to defeat the bad guy. That's really what it kind of boils down to. Now, I remember in the, the little video I watched summarizing it, that there is a section where you actually end up back in jail, but you are disguised as a guard, correct? I believe that's correct. It, it does borrow from Fable 1, this, this, okay. prison, this prison scene. When, now, if, if you remember, when you're in, in jail, is that just a cut scene? Or do you actually, because I, like, I know the, apparently the hero ends up like being a torturer and stuff like that or something like that is like do you have any input in that or is it just like the hero spent time and he had to do some bad things let's get on with it well i'm i'm a bad podcaster because i don't remember oh that's fine that that tells you a lot about the fable too is the fact that i don't, don't remember this game fondly i i remember it being kind of fun the first three times that you're chopping wood or being a blacksmith but the plot itself was just like meh which is interesting, because don't a lot of people hold this game to be better than Fable 1? Some people consider this to be better than Fable 1, oh, yes. Oh, it's a polarizing thing? Okay. I would say it's a polarizing thing. I haven't obviously looked into the Reddit nerds who would, would argue for or against this game being better than the first one. Um, I, I don't think it's better than the first first one. I think, it's, I, I think some of the mechanics are better. But like I said, the setting and the mechanics of it weren't my favorite. Sure. So I will say with that ending... I do at least appreciate that there is a little bit more of an actual moral dilemma. I mean, with the exception of taking the gold, but like choosing between 
a bunch of people that died building this the spire or your family that's an actual real moral dilemma right loved ones versus a bunch of people so i will at least kind of give it a little bit of a a little nod saying at least you got one right yeah, and it does the same thing with uh, appearances. You know, eating good foods will make you thinner. Bad foods will make you fatter. Um, you can buy property and like charge rent on it and stuff like that. And you can have uh, families, same-sex marriage. You can have children that can die of you know, what is it called? Like dysentery? Uh, Am I playing Oregon Trail again? Uh, SIDS. <laughs> oh God, are you serious? Yeah, you can have child. You can have children die of SIDS in this game. You can oh get God. STDs, you can buy condoms. So as a, as a 19 year old with like a boner, like this is. <laughs> Man, I thought the first game was a sweet where you just like smooch your wife and go into a sweet, like dark room. One thing I do remember that was kind of cool about this game is that certain environmental treasures or whatever would generate based on real time. So if you're like, let's say you owned like a shop or something and you came back Five hours later, it would actually generate money in real time, which was oh, kind of cool. cool. So yeah, if you turn off your Xbox, it would actually like generate with a time clock. Fable 2 kind of enhanced the morality system a little bit. It, I think it was a little convoluted. They, you, Your character would morph based upon different major alignment scales. There was good and evil and purity and corruption. I don't really know how they intertwine directly. I don't know like the algorithm for what made a hero good and pure versus evil and corrupt. There's a, a little redundant, right? Like wouldn't pure imply like good like you, you can really be corrupt good. I mean you yeah, could be purely purely evil and corruptedly evil, but I have a hard time seeing a corrupted good. I think corrupted good was be like you're a good guy but you're fat. That's, I mean, that's rude to the rotunda people that are nice. <laughs> I know. Um, it was like, if you ate a lot of meat and drank a lot of alcohol, regardless of your alignment, you'd be good or bad. So it's more, it's less about like moral choices, but just like... Literal morality. Okay, like, okay. So like the drunken monk in Forbidden Kingdom, Jackie Chan's character, he would be a good corrupt player or a good right. corrupt character. They, they he's, he's good, but he's... he's alcoholic yeah they want it it's almost like a really it's a uh a nick jr D, &D alignment scale <laughs> man i cannot wait to watch gullah gullah island later gullah gullah island yes but that's that's fable 2 general impressions are it, it played okay and i was hyped for it even though i didn't get my hob plush but it just it kind of killed the series for me because i absolutely like i said i absolutely loved the first game and then the third game came out. All right, so that leads us to Fable 3. And Reed, I'm not sure about your opinion on this, but I feel like Fable 3 was potentially ruined by the success of the first two games. So about halfway through Fable 3, it, it sort of changes from this fun little action adventure set 50 years after the second game, so it's in that sort of imperial industrial age, and it changes from an action-adventure RPG to a property manager game. Sort of reminiscent of the infamous prototype where instead of freeing up zones and then you freed it up and now it's like fine and you control that area, you're going and buying property and sort of leveraging taxes on people. It's, it's still a moral system, but it changes a, a lot. And that's kind of where it lost me. Yeah. And I feel the same way. I acquired this game. I don't remember how I got this game. I know I got it for free. <laughs> you no, acquired this game. I know. I remember I acquired it for free because I, I I think I won like a sweepstakes or I got it as like an employee thing. I don't remember. I'd never, I never. I didn't pay for it. I remember. Is that one of the one of the two things you've won? <laughs> yes, it's true. That's <laughs> <laughs> very true. How's yeah, that NASCAR VHS? <laughs> <laughs> Two, three people know about the, the NASCAR VHS. Well, now it's going to be four. Now it's going to be four. Yes. I, I, I acquired the game and I played it and I just immediately was kind of turned off. It does take place 50 years after the second game. And I looked into the creation of the third game and the mentality and um, purpose for why they created Fable 3 the way they did 
was actually kind of interesting and I don't blame them for doing this. I just don't think they executed it very well. Peter Molyneux was asking questions about, uh, he was answering questions from like a reporter or something. And like the person asking him a question was like, so it seems like a lot of games have the same sequence of like, you start off really weak and you play through the game and you get stronger and you get stronger and you get stronger. And at the end you beat the main bad guy and that's the end of it. You know, and Peter Molyneux was like, yeah, why don't we just make a game where you do all of those things, but then you continue playing after you become super powerful. And I thought to myself, that's actually like a really good point. We play a lot of games where you become the penultimate power or the ultimate power in a game, but then that's it. And I would bring up the counterpoint as cliched as it is. The journey is really what's valuable. Yeah, like, it, it is It is nice to have all those things, but I mean, go play Diablo 1 and just make yourself level 100 and see how fun that is. Yeah, and I just want to touch on the plot for like a minute here. It, it does take place about 50 years after Fable 2. What really threw me off about Fable 3 compared to the second one, which threw me off of Fable 1, was that you, you immediately are given this role of playing a prince or princess. That is a positive. You were able to play as a female character for the first time in the series. Um, you couldn't play in 2? I thought you could play as a female in 2. You may be right. I, I just remember playing as, as male. You could be. You could absolutely be right. I could be wrong. Um, but you can play as a prince or princess, and you are the uh, sibling of this king, Logan, who become the king of Albion. And you realize over time that he's become kind of a pretty evil guy, and there's a situation where he's going to be sacrificing a crowd of people that are protesting against him, or you can sacrifice your love interest. And so that's like one of the major first decisions that you make. After whatever decision that you make, you do end up fleeing the castle. And just kind of like the second one, your major goal is to gather allies throughout the kingdom of Albion to overthrow Logan. You find out once you go to this kingdom called Aurora that there was this evil entity called the Crawler with the subsequent evil force called the Darkness. Ooh, scary. Um, who that was a really deep dig for that idea. I know. They took a lot of time and effort to come up with the darkness. And this creature and the darkness uh, destroyed much of this desert kingdom called Aurora. Over time, you sort of realize that Lo what Logan is doing might not necessarily be evil. He's just trying to kind of protect the kingdom from this invading force. And he wants to kind of prepare people for the invading uh, evil. Eventually, what happens is you kind of go from place to place recruiting people for the cause of rebellion to overthrow Logan. You eventually do overthrow Logan through, you know, a lot of different actions and you are appointed as the new monarch, king or queen, and you can either kill or spare Logan once you get to this point. And once you make that decision of killing him or sparing him, you are appointed as the new, you know, king or queen and you have a year's time to sort of build up your defenses and monetary reserves to fight the crawler and the darkness. And you eventually realize that one of your companions gets assessed and possessed by the darkness and the crawler. So you have to end up killing one of your companions. And once you finish the real end game, you have to kind of deal with the consequences of your actions with the war with the darkness and the crawler. So the plot is a lot more pigeonholed into this pre predetermined role as a newly minted monarch that must make positive decisions for the uh, kingdom as a whole. So while Fable 2 was more focused on buying individual property and kind of making yourself as just like a common man, in the third game you play the role as a king ruling a kingdom. And I think there's a lot of really arbitrary and pointless roles that are given to you, like boosting morale and stuff like this within Fable 3. And I just, I never beat Fable 3. It just didn't, it didn't appeal to me a lot of the same reasons why the second one didn't appeal to me it's just that they continued along with this colonial industrial theme and being forced into this role where you have to play a prince or princess it just it didn't open the gates like the first one did where you could be whatever you want you could make your hero do good and evil things within the context of the game i don't know it just it just seemed like fable 3 was getting further and further away from what I, even though I got it for free, it was further and further away from what I loved about the first game. Yeah, and and I also remember not beating Fable 3 and just kind of giving up on it. Right around the time you become king, 
there's a lot of just like I said earlier, it's like a property management sim and they bring some of the people to you for you to make decisions. And it seems like the only way you can actually beat the darkness is by being the bad guy. I'm not sure if it was trying to make some sort of point about, you know, sometimes bad actions are justified for the greater good. I, you know, like, I, I almost think it wasn't very well thought out. And the big clue to me thinking this plot wasn't very well thought out is, so you're eventually contacted by Teresa again, the sister from the first game, and she's the one that tells you about the the darkness and then when you go to usurp your brother he mentions that he was contacted by Teresa as well so there's some sort of disconnect there where why couldn't she just tell you that your brother's doing what he's doing because of this darkness and maybe you go from there and have to decide to usurp him or, or something like that like I, I it just seems like a big plot hole that it was just kind of patched together instead of doing the logical thing of just saying oh yeah no your brother's just doing this for a good reason and then you have that choice. It doesn't give you that. You just usurp him and basically either continue doing what he's doing because that's how you stop the darkness or be a good guy and doom the kingdom. Yeah, and I didn't know if I mentioned it, but this is only 50 years after the second game and you play the son or daughter of the hero from the second game. So it is, like I said, it's a direct continuation of the whole series, but... I, you just kind of blew a hole through the entire plot. Is like, why didn't Teresa contact both of you at the same time right. and, and say, hey, this is what's going to happen. Why are we twisting it in a way that's so stupid? Like, it just seems really pointless. I don't know. I, I just, I don't really like three that much. Yeah, I would, I, I agree wholeheartedly. I think there's something about starting in obscurity and rising to power that I think is just a lot more relatable, just because a lot of average schmoes like you and I know more what it's like to be known important. And it's easier to relate to that and suspend the disbelief of, you know, grinding your way to the top and becoming some mighty king or emperor or whatever, as opposed to just growing up royalty and making these odd decisions. Like, you know, there's there, you don't really feel like you've earned anything. Yeah, there's a lot more reward when you're not just rewarded it from the beginning. So I think that pretty much wraps up the main three games. I think the, the general summary that we can both agree with is that the first game is an excellent action RPG. It has its jank, it has its faults, but it does have this really cozy atmosphere and just really fun, absurd, playable game. While I think they kind of missed a step with 2 and especially 3 when they kind of came to. And, and Fable 3, it came out in 2010, and there were a few side games that kind of came after the fact. That sweet Connect game. That's I know sweet. everyone. I know everyone's clamoring to hear all about that Connect game that came oh, out. I think I have it. I think it's called Fable Journeys. I do have a yeah. Connect. Fable Journeys, yeah. And it was right, next er time. Next time I'm down, we'll fire that bad boy up. Oh boy. Uh, yeah, I think it's a pretty linear. Just like move your hand here. It, it, there's not. It's like a rail shooter, from what I understand. Yes, yes, that's exactly what it is. And they they tried making more Fable games after that. Do you remember the names of those? The only one that sticks out is Fable Legends, which. It got canceled, I believe, like they were working on it, and then Microsoft closed Lionhead Studios due to some poor mismanagement, or due to mismanagement. Um, and Fable Legends was going to be a up to four player co-op adventure, which, I, I again, I guess I would have some reservations with, just on the basis that, kind of what we were talking about before, Fable is this game don't make it into something it's not i would have loved to play fable multiplayer with a friend just like i would love to play skyrim with a friend but when you change the central focus what makes the the first fable so engrossing is just that interaction with your environment having that sort of immediate feedback when you're doing something good being cheered by people when you walk into a town because you just beat the crap out of this huge wasp it, it, that is more of what fable is to me and it makes it easier to just get engrossed into this world where you can actually get direct feedback from the common folk of your deeds. And they kind of lose it over those other games. And I, I think Fable Legends would have just been more of a step away from what Fable truly is to me. Yeah, I would, I would totally agree with that. And actually, sure, uh, Fable 2 actually had co-op. It did? It had, oh, that's it, right. It had drop-in co-op. I remember co seeing that. Yeah, it you had can play the dog, right? 
No, you could play as a mercenary. <laughs> you could play. You could play as a mercenary, but it also had online co-op. But it, like you said, it's just like it's like having a motorcycle and a sidecar. It wasn't like you're bringing your character into my game. You're just playing as a side character to help me like kill a few guys and gain loot. Sure. It, it wasn't like a it wasn't like a Diablo co-op where you both need to be there to to kind of get the the right synergy. It was just a an add. You're, you're an extra dude. You're just an extra dude. Yeah, and. I, I, yeah, I absolutely don't think that Fable Legends wouldn't have taken off. And I know there have been ruminations of a Fable 4, um, even as recently as like last year, I heard they're still working on it. And again, I think in order for it to be a successful game, they need to bring it back to what Fable is. I Honestly, I would say tie it back in with that original family since it seems to revolve around them. Um, sort of a Skywalker thing. Yeah. But why, why not play as the sister of the whole game? Why not play as the sister the whole game, or... The dad, or the mom. The dad, um, or even take it back farther. I Like I mentioned earlier, if you did something sort of pre-Fable 1, we were playing the, the ancestor that asked to be the one to, like, originally banish the Blade of Eons. Just, just something, not that I'm a huge fan of the prequel idea and everything being explained, but in order for it to be a success, I think it needs to embody the feel of the original Fable. Yeah, I agree. And one of the things that we were talking about before we started this podcast tonight was this idea of gaming series that you really enjoy and you get really hooked on the first game, but then the subsequent games aren't really up to par as the first game that you really fell in love with, but you still play it anyway. So I'm wondering what your kind of opinions are on it. I have a few examples, so maybe I'll start. This is probably the the, the top example, the fact that I love Fable 1, so I gave Fable 2 and 3 a try even though I didn't think it would ever live up to the nostalgia and love I had for the first game. And there's other games in this series that kind of, I mean, there's other games like that that kind of popped in my mind. And one of them might be controversial is Pokemon. I absolutely loved the first and second generations of Pokemon, but it sort of seemed that every other generation, I liked it and disliked it, liked it and disliked it. I loved Pokemon 1 and 2. 3 I liked, but I was like, eh, it's okay. 4, same thing, I was kind of eh. But black and white, Pokemon black and white, I really, 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 really loved. But then it went to X and Y, and I kind of fell out of it. And then it went to uh, Sun and Moon, and I kind of fell out of it. But Sword and Shield, I know it's the unpopular opinion, but I loved Sword and Shield. Wait, people don't like Sword and Shield? Yeah, because they didn't include every single Pokemon that's ever existed. Oh, okay. Yep. Uh, I guess, yeah, I had a very similar sort of relationship with Pokemon. Obviously, Pokemon 1, I played constantly... I picked up the second gen, and I remember picking up third gen, and I, it, that's where it kind of lost me. I didn't pick one back up until black and white, and honestly, I didn't really get into that one either. I I was excited to try it, and I don't know, I just couldn't vibe with it. And then I did also, I, I bought a Switch just to play Pokemon Sword and Shield, because I it just looked really nice, and it was a kind of a refreshing change. But I, I like Sword and Shield a lot. Yeah, me too. And I, I, I get not getting into into black and white, but I don't want to detract away from Fable, but... <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> but hey, black and white, it's a morality system, right? Right. Uh, I, I just like black and white because of... Uh, the, the st- I think it has the strongest storyline out of every Pokemon game. But who plays... I, I guess who plays the games for the story, I guess... Yeah, I'll be honest. I, for With Pokemon, I'm usually just kind of like a jam A until I get to the next battle kind of guy. Yeah, but have you ever gone back and played the original Pokemon Red, Blue, or Yellow? They are hard. And they take yeah. forever to get anywhere. Yeah, they are. I just think uh, what I'm <laughs> to get back on track here. We're gonna do we're gonna do a Pokemon podcast, I'm sure, at some point. Maybe in the spring. That's a very I don't know. Spring's a very you know. This is a very uh, Fable's a very autumnal game. Very seasonal person when it comes to your gaming, my friend. I no, I absolutely am, and I'm gonna hundred percent um, hold into that. Um, since you know this is autumn, when I think of autumn, I think of Fable. When it becomes winter time, I think of Castlevania, and um, I think of Castlevania think, all the time. But, I think of Skyrim when it comes to winter. Yeah, no, that's I, rem- absolutely, I yeah. remember playing that in like in December with like my windows open just to like really get the vibe. Just so you could have like a frost troll like sc- stroll up and be like, "What are you playing?" <laughs> yeah, that's um, yeah. So so winter winter reminds me of Castlevania because that's when I got some of the Castlevania games. It also reminds me of Mario. Because every Christmas I would get a new Mario game, so like Christmas time, like oh new Mario Kart, new new uh, you know Mario Sunshine, whatever. 
Um, spring spring reminds me of of uh, Pokemon for some reason. Summer reminds me of what is it called? God, I can't even think right now. No, uh, uh, Elder Scrolls. Yeah, because you know I would spend my summers playing Morrowind and Oblivion and, and, and Skyrim. So like when I had free time off of school, I would be able to dedicate all of my time to Elder Scrolls. Anyway, let's kind of get back to Fable. I think it's overall interesting franchise and I really appreciate the developers efforts to kind of make things cool and original and shaped around you. I do ultimately feel they kind of felt short and things kind of got constricted once Microsoft bought out Lionhead. And with Fable 2 and Fable 3, it just didn't live up to the promise that Fable 1 presented. What do you think, Jeremy? I agree. I think Fable is the perfect game to talk about in this style of podcast where we're really just hyper-focused on gaming stories in particular and some of the good, some of the bad, how everything connects. Because I think in the end, it's a prime example of a story not necessarily being complex or in-depth, but still being able to utilize the medium and to engross you in the system. Yeah, I agree. It's one thing to read a book. It's one thing to be to a To live book. a book. So, that being said, we appreciate you guys kind of coming along with this ride of Fable. Uh, good series overall. And if you've not had a chance to play Fable Anniversary on Xbox or Steam, we do recommend it. Absolutely. It's a great game. Uh, any other concluding statements you have, Jeremy, about the Fable series? Try to get your combat multiplier even higher. <laughs> your, your health is low. Watch that. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for kind of joining us for this roundabout journey into the Fable franchise. We hope to hear from you soon, and maybe we'll have some more fun stuff coming up towards the uh, end of this year and the beginning of the next year. So thank you for coming along. Jeremy, I'll have you send us off. Do you chase chickens, chicken chaser? Thanks for joining us, ladies and gentlemen. We'll see you next time.